All right, well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We have been spending quite a bit of time this year in 1 Thessalonians, and we are really at this critical point in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which deals with a very, uh, a very debated text. And we are taking our time going through chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, so that we can spend time examining the details and, and uh, diving deep into it uh, to see what is actually there. Because as I said, this is a debated text and a, a uh, ignored text, or a, a text that I would even say in uh, many circles is somewhat maligned. And it is this text on the resurrection of the dead, the coming of Christ, and how this all works together in God's future plans for us. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, really the critical verses of this text, the most debated ones, found in verses 16 and 17, and I'm pretty sure we won't get through this all uh, this morning, and so this is going to extend into next week. And in fact, I do want to say this, Uh, this morning we will be talking uh, about, we'll be studying the doctrine of the rapture, and that quickly elicits a lot of questions, and uh, I've got a list of questions uh, that I've already been putting together, questions that are commonly asked related to uh, the rapture, but I also want to invite you to submit questions next week. We'll continue this study. It'll probably be our last, uh, our last Sunday in chapter 4, and I want to allow time for uh, questions to be answered. So if you could email me at bclausen at gracechurch.org any questions that relate to, uh, as I've called it here, death, uh, the resurrection, particularly the resurrection of believers in Christ, and the rapture. So even as we go through our study this morning, uh, if you have a question, make sure you have my, my email address there, and you can even send it uh, as we are in our study this morning or throughout the week, as you may, you may look at this, and I'll seek to answer as many of those that I can next week, as well as finish what we don't cover uh, here this morning. But as I said, when we get into uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, you come across what we call critical or the, the primary teaching, uh, most detailed teaching on the rapture of the church. But as you know, this is quite a disputed doctrine, and in fact it is quite maligned, especially in the world. There is a lot of embarrassment even among Christians over this doctrine, There is ridicule over this doctrine in the world, a lot of misrepresentation. Certainly there are those who seek to twist this doctrine and and produce all kinds of materials to create some kind of a a financial empire through it. We, We acknowledge that. There's been a lot of abuse on both sides of the issue, but it it requires us to to dig down deeper into this. Because as we would we would say that if you just talk about the or mention the concept of the rapture to even somewhat familiar with the Bible or the church, they would probably think that the rapture is something akin to the zombie apocalypse. I mean, that's where it, it rests kind of in the area of seriousness, even among some Christians. Let me begin by quoting to you uh, an opinion piece that was... Uh, that was um, written in uh, a CNN uh, piece, uh, written uh, maybe about eight years ago, 
CNN, that trusted source for all things related to truth, as you know, especially uh, biblical truth. But this uh, opinion writer for CNN, his name is Jay Perini, he wrote an opinion piece called Even Jesus Wouldn't Buy the Rapture. And in that piece, he, he writes this, the rapture notion goes like this, Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he return before a time of so-called tribulation begins, calling up into the clouds with him those who are saved. Horrible suffering will then occur on the miserable earth for seven years. Then Jesus will come yet again for a final judging. There are many different versions of this scenario, so it's difficult to summarize. It's fair to say, however, that only fundamentalist Protestant churches bother to think about the rapture at all. The rapture concept, he goes on to say, is relatively new. It started with an Anglo-Irish theologian who in the 1830s invented the concept. This may come as a shocker to many, but it's a fact. Before John Nelson Darby imagined this scenario in the clouds, no Christian had ever heard of the rapture. It's a problem, however, for rapture-minded Christians that the word rapture doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Unless you're willing to broadly metaphorical terms, rapture thinking is most often traced back to the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians. And he goes on to allegorize that for a little while, and then he says this. It's clear from looking carefully at everything Paul says about the future, as in 1 Corinthians 15, 51-54, Philippians 3, 20-21, that he believes only that someday Christians will experience a kind of physical and spiritual change. They will be resurrected, but this is a complex term that suggests not necessarily resuscitation, but evolution, a thorough transformation. And then he concludes with these words. Yet it's amazing how scriptures get misused, and relatively new theological ideas such as the rapture get deeply embedded a plot device for popular entertainment in a bizarre theological teaching in fundamentalist circles, where it functions in a variety of ways, but it's bad theology, and Jesus himself would have been astonished to learn that thousands of years after him there were such notions afloat. That is the standard view in the broader world today that cares anything about religion, how they view this concept of the rapture. They don't believe it is taught in the Bible. They will make assertions that the word rapture is nowhere to be found. This is a modern invention, and before 1830, no one ever, ever, ever thought of a concept of the rapture. But that's not just a view that is there in the unbelieving world, the world of the skeptics and the critics, those who hate the gospel and certainly do not believe the Bible to be the ultimate inerrant authority. It is also a view that is shared to various among those who would call themselves Christians as well. For example, N.T. Wright, a, a British uh, scholar uh, known very well in circles related to biblical scholarship, uh, N.T. Wright said this in a blog uh, titled, Farewell to the Rapture. He said this, Paul's description of Jesus' reappearance in 1 Thessalonians 4 is a brightly colored version of what he says in two other passages, 1 Corinthians 15 and Philippians 3. 
at Jesus' coming or appearing, those who are still alive will be changed or transformed so that their mortal bodies will become incorruptible, deathless. That is all Paul intends to say in Thessalonians. Little did he know how his rich metaphors would be misunderstood two millennia later. You can kind of see that both in terms of uh, biblical scholarship and the critique of the doctrine of the resurrection and in the unbelieving world, how much of this logic is the same. Uh, This is just fairy tale, myth kind of stuff. And when it comes to the Bible's teaching, it really doesn't contain anything concrete related to the rapture. That's an invention. It just has these metaphors. We can't take them too seriously. After all, it's about the future. And in those texts, we really don't draw doctrine. We get some encouragement from it, but we certainly do not develop any systematic understanding from prophetic texts. That is a very common view, even among large numbers of Christians today. But what does 1 Thessalonians 4 actually teach? What does the language actually say? What happens if we do a deep dive into it and look at the details? Well, that's what we're involved in here in this paragraph of Thessalonians 4. And let me just say this before we get into it this morning. Let's remember that Paul doesn't write this letter to some ivory tower scholars or theologians somewhere in isolation so that they could debate among themselves in the halls of the the, the academy about what might be coming in the future. He writes this to a very young church, a church that was maybe six months old. And to that church at that very early age, he is giving them this doctrine. And he's giving them this doctrine, these details, not merely to create some possible optimism, some flowery, bright pictures. He is giving them concrete truth in order to respond to their sorrow. They are a church that was, this is a church that was sowing over the death of believers and not understanding what would happen to them in the future. So now let's go back and even let's review a little bit of what we've covered so far as we started our study of this paragraph. We began by looking at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4 in that first sermon entitled, Doctrine Makes All the Difference. And Paul writes this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. We studied these two verses a couple of weeks ago and and, and recognized what Paul is doing here. The the church in Thessalonica had begun to, to experience the loss of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't know exactly why they had died. Some have suggested persecution. We do know that the church had faced opposition there in Thessalonica, and it's possible, although Paul never says. It could have been due to other reasons as well. It could have been due to natural causes. There were some natural disasters around that time we, we know of. And, and, and so there could be a myriad of reasons, and Paul doesn't include those, deal, those details because that's really not the point. The point was, brothers and sisters in Christ have been passing away. He uses the euphemistic language here. They had been falling asleep. 
He does that for a purpose. First of all, as part of his effort to console them, but also part of his effort to begin building up to what he's going to teach a little bit later on in this passage, that, that physical death is not the end of the body for the Christian. Physical death represents what Paul is going to say. In reality, is a period of time in which the body is, is laying down. Yes, it's undergoing decay, but it will not remain laying down. It will rise up. And what appears to be the case is that these Thessalonians, as they dealt with the loss of these loved ones in their congregation, were really struggling with the idea that these believers who had already passed away may in some way miss out on God's future activities. They began to wonder if they were not alive at the coming of Christ, when he would come, as the Thessalonians were described in chapter 1, verse 10, as those who were, who were awaiting, who were waiting from heaven, Jesus, the one who would come to rescue them from the wrath to come. Now, what would happen if you weren't alive came to, to rescue you from the wrath to come? What, what would happen? Your, your soul would certainly be with Christ, but what about the body? Those who are alive would be rescued, and it's assumed that their bodies would, would be glorified. But what about those who had already died? And Paul steps in now to console them and say, Listen, those who have died in Christ, those who have died are, are, are not going to miss out. And Paul shows us here that in response to the sorrow that they were facing, doctrine is the answer. Doctrine, truth, is what they needed. And that's what Paul begins to provide. He then moves on to the next verse, verse 15. And now he begins to to provide the actual teaching, the doctrine that will alleviate their fears and build within them confidence. He says in verse 15, For this we say by the word of the Lord, referring there to his prophetic authority, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There, Paul emphasizes that the dead in Christ are not disadvantaged. That in the future stages of God's uh, God's redemptive plan, as, as the next event begins to unfold, that those who receive the priority, those who are advantaged, most privileged, in that next stage of redemptive activity are actually the dead, the dead in Christ. And Paul here consoles the Thessalonians by saying, listen, you are worried about their state, but understand this, they have the privilege. They will be the first ones to receive their resurrected bodies. They are not disadvantaged. And that is so important because we often look, even at believers who pass away, that somehow that death represents disadvantage. We, we think that somehow it would be better if, if they could have been resuscitated and, and kept alive in this life. And we have this view that death represents disadvantage in some way. It's not, it's not good for them. But in reality, Paul says, they have the privilege. Theirs will be the honor of being the first to rise. The dead in Christ are not disadvantaged. Now we get into the final part of this paragraph. And this morning we'll see how far we get in verses 16 and 17. 
but we'll go all the way to the end of verse 18, and I know for sure verse 18 we will look at next Sunday. It's the capstone to this discussion. But let's read these verses to 18 as Paul now takes this even deeper into a detailed instruction. He says this, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, as I mentioned before, and as I read those quotations, both from a skeptic outside the church and someone who who claims to be within the church, there is this idea that 1 Thessalonians 4 is this ambiguous detail, or this ambiguous paragraph, lacking in concrete details. You can't make too much of it. But even as we read that paragraph, notice the sequence that is involved there, the details that are involved there. And these are not just details that we look at and say, well, you know, sure, these are concrete details. There's sequence here. We can't make too much about it. Just leave it in the the realm of the, the bizarre and move on. Paul does not let us do that. Moreover, remember what we emphasized just a couple of weeks ago. Paul introduces this particular instruction back in verse 15, and he says, This I say to you by the word of the Lord. That is an authoritative formula. It is a declaration to say, look, this is important. This is from the mouth of Jesus himself, as Jesus has communicated this through Paul to the Thessalonians. We must take it seriously. And when we do, we can come up with this kind of a conclusion. One commentator says this, and I'm going to correct some of what he says here, but he's right in his general assertion. He says this, The material of verses 16 and 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4 constitutes the most explicit descriptions of the events surrounding Christ's not return, but coming, and I'll come back to that in just a moment, surrounding Christ's coming found anywhere in Paul's writings and probably in the whole New Testament as well. So even when scholars come to this text and and start looking at its details, they're forced to look at it, they realize There is a lot here, and it is unique. We don't find this level of detail regarding Christ's coming, Christ's parousia. We don't find that level of detail anywhere else in Paul's writings and possibly within the New Testament as it relates to this particular event. Now, you notice on the screen here that I crossed out the word return. That is is somewhat of a careless slip-up by a very... A competent uh, commentator, because the word return is never used in the text. There is a different term that is used in this context. It's the term coming. And there, as we will see, either this morning or next Sunday, there is a difference between these two concepts that, are, that is very important to understand and, and, and recognize within uh, this text, this paragraph of First Thessalonians. Now, when we go through verses 16 and 17, as we do this deep, detailed analysis, I want us to notice that this text, verses 16 and 17, 
it unfolds different stages of one event. You've probably, you probably saw that. The language leads us through a sequential, chronological series of events. Now, we'll say at the outset that these events at the coming of Christ described in 1 Thessalonians 4, these events, or this event, takes place really in such a split second. Paul elsewhere says, in the twinkle of an eye. So this is all a very, very fast event. But if we pull it apart, we can see a sequence. And that's what we'll do beginning this morning. And when we do, we're going to notice four stages. Four stages. So if you're taking notes and and, uh, you're looking at the text of 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verses uh, 16 and 17, uh, feel free to to even mark up your your text a little bit to notice these things or to take these notes because this is very, very... And like I said, these are details that are often ignored or missed, but they're there, and we'll see them, I trust. Number one, the first stage. We're going to see that the first, ev- that the first stage of this event is the descent of Christ. The descent of Christ. And uh, we will see how that term is used there. It's found in the beginning of verse 16. Stage one, the descent of Christ. Stage two... In the second half of verse 16, we will see then the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And I'm preserving here as much as I can of the language of the text so that you can see that this flows right from uh, an observation of the text. Stage two is the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And we're going to see that little phrase in Christ is going to be so very important in understanding the resurrection in this particular context. Following that, In the beginning of verse 17, we get to stage 3. And stage 3 is marked by the rapture of all believers, both the dead in Christ and the living in Christ. At that particular sequence during this event, we see the rapture of all believers to Christ. As we will see, it it is for the purpose of meeting him in the air. And then stage 4 The final stage, the capstone to which all of this is driving in this context, stage four is the life of all believers with Christ. And that is found in the second half of verse 17. So the descent of Christ, the resurrection of the dead in Christ, the the rapture of all believers to Christ, and then the life of all believers with Christ. Four stages of this event, which Paul in this context calls the coming, of Christ. Let's look at the first of these, the descent of Christ. Notice the beginning of verse 16. Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now, at the very beginning of this sentence, we have that conjunction there, for. That, that explains that this is part of an ongoing development of an argument. Paul is transitioning now from something he has just stated to something that, that further describes it. So if we look at the end of verse 15, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago, the end of verse 15 reads this, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The end, Paul makes a denial. He makes a denial related to the order of events 
It makes a denial related to the, 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 our, our relationship to the dead in Christ. So that, that's the denial. This is not going to happen, Paul says at the end of verse 15. But now as he transitions into verse 16, now Paul says, but this will happen. Now this is a common teaching mechanism of the Apostle Paul. He'll often do this. He will transition between Denials and affirmations, positive statements and negative statements to help the reader think through and and, and learn both by negation and by positive affirmation. So that is what he does here. So we look at verse 16 and realize now Paul is making a positive affirmation. He is providing detailed affirmative explanation of what will happen at the coming of Christ. What won't happen, and that is, verse 15, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep, but now he's going to say, what will happen? Now, as we look at this text even further, notice this. It continues with Paul saying this, for the Lord himself, the Lord himself, and that extra pronoun that's used there is intensifying, and it's there for a reason. We dare not miss it. You see, you can, you can understand how the, the Thessalonians who were anxious about the state of their dead brothers and sisters in Christ, how there can grow this implicit or incipient doubt that Jesus really cares. Just think of it for a moment. When you're anxious, when you worry, You worry about your health, you worry about your work, you worry about your kids, you worry about tomorrow. And incipient in that worry is this question. Is the Lord really involved? Is he really involved in my circumstances? Is he really with me? That's the basic doubt within worry. So what Paul does here when he emphasizes the Lord. He doesn't just say the Lord will. He says the Lord himself will. Paul is making a very emphatic statement that it is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Lord, who himself is now in control of all this. He is not a bystander. He is not someone who has delegated these next events to some other authority. He he is taking this upon himself. He is the one to enact this very next stage in redemptive history. He himself. And notice what he does. See, he will descend. He himself will descend. Now this is important because we, as we ought to, as we must, we understand that that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father. And that is our understanding, and that is how we approach the Father through Jesus, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and there he dwells in his manifest glory with the Father. And that's our day-to-day perception. We think, you can ask, you know, where's Jesus? And if your child asks you that, you say, well, Jesus is in heaven with the Father at the right hand. But this is important to recognize because now it is Jesus himself who gets up and speaking from the right hand of the Father, and now he himself is in movement. For the first time since he 
since he arrived at the right hand of the Father in Acts chapter nine verse or Acts chapter one verse nine. Remember that, right? Jesus bids his disciples farewell, and then he ascends into the clouds to sit at the right hand of the Father. And he is there. The New Testament scriptures over and over again emphasize that fact. He is there in his manifest glory at the right hand of the Father over and over and over again. But this is unique because now the Lord is no longer in this event at the right hand of the Father. He has risen up and now he is in a process of descent. To descend means to move in a downward direction and notice, and this is very, very important, it does not say the Lord will return. It does not say the Lord will return. That verb to descend only describes downward movement. It does not describe the terminus of that movement. It does not describe. The word to return is not used here. Now, often, interpreters will just make the assumption that this descent is the same thing as the return. And we'll talk about that. We'll, right, we'll talk about the return of Christ. But the, the, that wording is not used here. And we must not confuse the mere downward motion with the idea of a return to the earth. The language does not support that. So far, in this Event, stage one, only describes a descent. It never describes the end of the descent on earth. There's no description here that Jesus' feet even touch the surface of the earth. He descends. And as we're going to see in a little bit, he descends to the clouds, to the air, but not to the ground. And notice where he descends from. He descends from heaven as the text states, and that statement is important. It reminds us of that text which I already referenced, but I want you to turn back there for just a moment. It's chapter 1, verse 10. Paul is drawing upon something that he's already stated, some language that he's already used in this letter, and it's important to make a reference back to this verse because Paul's weaving it in. And and in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, remember way back, I think it was back in January, we looked at great thanksgiving to God in chapter 1. All those characteristics of of genuine conversion, genuine salvation are listed for us in verses 2 to 10. And at the very end of that thanksgiving statement, at the very beginning of this letter, Paul describes the conversion of the Thessalonians. And notice what he says. He says, For they themselves, he's talking about others in the provinces of Achaia and Macedonia, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. And then he says this, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and, notice verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Already, that in the Thessalonians' very early faith, they were just months old, they already had this this robust anticipation. They were not only active in ministry, they were not only active in service, 
but they lived their lives in this profound, this intense anticipation that Jesus would come from heaven. But as he comes from heaven, he would, he would enact or he would accomplish a certain kind of activity. And what is that? He would rescue them from coming wrath. Wrath is on the way. But Jesus would come and he would save that church, that congregation, those believers from whatever apocalypse was coming upon the earth. So now when we come back to chapter 4, verse 16, Paul is weaving in some aspects of what the Thessalonians already knew and at the same time providing them with further details. Yes, indeed, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Let's look further. There's more that is described with this first stage. The manner is detailed by Paul here. It's not just a quiet descent. Notice how Paul goes on to describe the manner of this descent. He says it is with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. This is an extraordinary manner. First of all, he says it's going to happen with a shout. The Lord's descent will be marked by this shout. It's a very special word that was used uh, in in the New Testament It was a a word that was used elsewhere outside the New Testament as well to describe. Actually, it's only used here in the New Testament. Elsewhere, it's, it's used abundantly outside of the New Testament. But it was a word that was used to describe a a a cry of a commander, a cry of a commander. So, elsewhere, it was used to denote that command that uh, an army general, an admiral, or a captain of a rowboat would would give to. The rowers. So if you're in one of these Roman military boats, there would be sometimes just one level of rowers. Sometimes there'd be two, sometimes even three levels of rowers. But you can imagine being in the, the hull of the boat. How do you know when to stop or when to give it all you got, right? And that would be delivered by the commander of the ship to row and whatever command would be given. And that word... The, the word that we have here, shout, was used to refer to that, to the cry of a commander, a general. This is one of the descriptions that, that Paul uses to describe the manner of this descent. There will be a shout. There will be a commanding cry, some loud voice that will give this command. Paul further describes this with some other details which seem to simply unwrap this. What does this shout sound like? Now, he goes on to say that it will be with the voice of the archangel. The voice of the archangel. Now, indeed, this is, this is interesting language. We only come across the word archangel one other time in the New Testament. In Jude chapter 9, we have a reference to the archangel Michael. That's the only place in the, in the New Testament that we have information on an archangel named Michael. Now, in Jewish speculation, probably based on the book of Daniel, because Daniel refers to Michael, doesn't call him an archangel, but calls him this kind of supernatural prince. Daniel chapter 10, a couple of times, mentions Michael. Now, in the intertestamental period, the Jews developed a whole hierarchy of 
angelic beings gave them all names. And, and Michael was one that they gave the, the Jewish uh, people. I had, I think, I think it was somewhere around um, is it seven, seven archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and, 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 and five others. We just don't know because it's not explicitly stated in Scripture. But here, we do have a reference to an archangel. And the term for archangel has the idea of being at the, at the height of the angels, the authority over the angels. So it is a massively important supernatural being, perhaps the highest that there is, directly under the command of the Lord Jesus himself. And so when this descent happens, there is this shout And you do have the voice of this archangel that is going to be heard at that same time. And thirdly, it is accompanied by the trumpet of God. The trumpet of God. This word trumpet and the concept of a blowing of a trumpet is a very important theme in Old Testament scripture in particular. It was used in various instances uh, it would be used to de- de- declare war, and so it would be the, the, the sound that would uh, be, be issued to get the troops into movement. Now is the time to attack. It was also used to summon, to, it was used to summon a, a group of people for other, uh, other things as well. So for example, in Isaiah 27 verse 13, we have an example of the trumpet blast. Isaiah 27, 13 says this, It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. There, the trumpet is is described as assembling people to worship in Jerusalem. But this idea of the the, the trumpet was, like I said, it was a very common idiom, a, a common expression to refer to the summons given to a, a large group of people. What marks the first stage of this event? The Lord himself leaves the right hand of the Father to descend. And as he descends, you have these other these other things happening at that time, you have this great shout, you have this commanding cry, and perhaps it is that cry that the voice of the archangel represents, and with it comes the blast of the trumpet of God. Let's summarize this first stage then. What do we see in this first stage as we we look into the details and let the text speak to us at face value What do we see? First of all, this is not a natural event. This is directly supervised by Christ himself. This is not a natural event. This is not a normal event, another day in the history of mankind. This is something supernatural. And we must recognize that. Number two, this is not a subtle event. This is not some kind of quiet event that takes place and, 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 and people may or may not observe it or, or recognize it. No, this is a very dramatic event. As the text states, it is spectacular. 
you have a commanding cry, the voice of the highest of the angels, and a massive trumpet blast to assemble God's people together. And thirdly, this is not a gradual event, but one that has all the hallmarks of a surprise. This is not something that is going to take days to achieve. This is not something that happens, you know, like your alarm clock, it goes off in the morning and it starts with this very silent sound and then gets progressively louder and until it, you know, until you finally shut it off. That's not the idea. It is like that alarm that starts at full blast instantly. It is a very sudden event. Well, that's the first stage of this event. Now, we've got a lot more to cover as we walk through this parousia, this coming of Christ. But even as we call it to a close this morning and reflect even upon this very, very profound statement that it is Christ who will descend. Reflect upon the stanza in that hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. And in the second stanza, you have that wonderful statement that those who are his are his pride. Now, we look at our lives and we will often say, how in the world can that be me? But we must remember that Christ is not done with his church. And when the time comes that the Father has decreed It's not a bunch of angels that are going to come for us. It is going to be Christ himself. And as we go through the the next stages of this event, we are going to see not just details about stages. We are going to see the love of Christ for his bride put on full display. He has not delegated this event to some other power or being. Christ himself is coming for us. And that is amazing. He will get up from the right hand of the Father and come and get up. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, we do acknowledge that when it comes to future events and to things unseen in our present day, things outside of the norm, We have many questions and often little faith. And so we ask that as we continue this study and this precious text, you would increase our faith, strengthen it. By these very words, create certainty in our minds that results in steadfast hope that even though here on this earth we may endure trials, We may even endure the passing of other beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. We may have questions what what death means to us, to the church. But may this text provide that consolation we need, that wonderful, sure, glorious hope. We ask that you would be our teacher in this, and we pray this so that as we learn and grow through this, our love for Christ would continue to grow. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.